Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Those words of Psalm 26, verse 8, still describe, no doubt, the feelings that are in the mind of many of us this morning, how thankful, how richly blessed we each are. And surely, as we give thought to the blessing of God toward that end, we can appreciate, just as we prayed a moment ago, the attributes of these songs in which we have just sung together, the sincere and heartfelt appreciation that's ours and now, to perhaps consider a lesson entitled, No Sleeping on the Job. You may have noted in the reading that Brother John read for us a moment ago from the closing verses of Mark 13, a set of statements, again, that have something to do with sleeping, but yet it's a matter that touches directly the life that you and I each choose to live. Let's cast a spotlight on that for the next few moments this morning, beginning with a slide like this one, reminding us of where we have come in our Bible reading as well as the features in a summary fashion of the lesson today. At this point, as of the end of the day yesterday, some 219 chapters of the Bible completed. That brings us to a little less than 18.5% the Word of God as we give consideration to that today again. May I suggest to you, sleeping on the job. It might well be that you or I have known of individuals who were caught napping on the job and the boss wasn't happy. Or maybe a person found him or herself sleeping on the job, maybe even for reasons that at least were understandable, perhaps medically related or otherwise, and yet the boss was not an understanding of it. As you and I think about no sleeping on the job, the focus of this paragraph, as you well noted, was of course the second coming of the Master. Some of those thoughts at the bottom of that slide are simply these. The second coming of Christ is a rich and timely topic. It never loses its interest. It never loses the excitement that seems to surround it. It may well be that that character, that whole idea of the second coming of Jesus, seems to have such an incredible interest, partly because of the somewhat strange characteristics many suggest that it will have. There really isn't anything that strange about it. In fact, let us let Jesus Himself speak about some of the features of His own second coming. And might we say, who better than He might be able to reveal to us some of the critical aspects of it? And so it is the last statement on that slide. The emphasis of the truth that now is before us today. As you come to the next slide with me, may I say to you, that one of the things that we tend to find so needful is the understanding that attaches to the historical aspect of it. You'll notice that Jesus was relatively near His own crucifixion. By this point, we are a mere couple of days at most from the time of His own death on the cross. And yet, as we find Him in this position, He had just been teaching in the temple. He had shared with them some amazingly powerful lessons, some earth-shattering truths, if I may use that expression. And yet, as He was leaving the temple, headed eastward, we notice He passed through that, that Kidron Valley. And as He did so, we notice in this very location that while leaving, it was the disciples who called His attention to that very complex He had just left. The temple, as it had been reconstructed by Herod, was a rather large and sizable building. It was impressively constructed. The stones that built its foundation were extremely large and heavy. 
You'll notice in verses 1 and 2, those disciples called the Lord's attention to that and said, Behold the stones, and behold the structure, the building. No doubt they were impressed by it. No doubt they were overwhelmed by apparently the constant and perpetual nature. Nothing would ever happen to that building. They must have been amazed in the next verse when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the day cometh when not one stone shall be left on another. What they thought was so unshakable, so unmovable, so perpetually constructed, Jesus said, it's not going to last. He said the stones, those large stones, one of them is going to be torn off the top of the other one. You'll notice as you can continue further on that particular slide, as the Lord made those statements, He continued on His walk through the Kidron Valley and He ascended that Mount of Olives. And as He came upon that particular mount, four of the apostles came to Him, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they asked Him privately, Lord, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? Those statements that Jesus had made enveloped in their minds such an interest. They came privately to ask for more details, to ask for an elaboration of those truths. And they then tell us, when are these things going to happen that you just mentioned? At that point, Jesus began His description, His discussion, His explanation. And it would last for a number of verses. In Mark chapter 13... You may notice that Jesus began His discussion in verse 5. He began His answer. That verse from there all the way until verse number 31 describes His explanation of that first question. What about the nature of when will these things be? What about the destruction of this temple? What about the conclusion of the matters related to Jerusalem? The Lord took all of those verses, 26 of them, to explain that answer. It is at that point you'll notice that as you come near the close, though, of that paragraph, two amazing statements are made. In verse number 30, Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And immediately one reckons that there were a listing of things that were found in those intervening verses. Things like this, wars, false Christs, characteristics uh, in a proverbial fashion, the very administrative powers of earth will be shaken. It was going to be an amazing set of overthrows of nation. It was going to be an amazing and deceptive time when individuals were going to claim to be Christ but weren't. There were going to be earthquakes. There were going to be various and sundry physical occurrences. Jesus said, this generation will not pass till all these things have been done. That timetable is a fascinating thing, isn't it? The very generation before whom the Lord spoke on that occasion would be one that would experience and appreciate the occurrence of those matters. May we stop and at least make the comment that on many occasions those sets of verses have been used to identify matters supposedly that have yet to occur. But yet Jesus said that generation was going to see all of it. Those who thus use those verses and try to paint a picture of the end of time with them have made a mistake. They have improperly used passages that do not make reference to the end of time. 
You'll notice in verse number 31, Jesus went on to say, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The certainty surrounding Jerusalem's destruction, the certainty surrounding the destruction of the temple, those things were etched in the very halls of heaven. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words won't. It is with that in mind that Jesus concluded that particular answer and then opened the second one. Remember that the apostles had asked about two things, one of which had been that destruction of Jerusalem, that temple destruction, another that attached right to the character of His own second coming. The lesson text that Brother John read a moment ago was that very set of verses that closed the chapter. Mark 13, verses 32 to 37. It is with this brief historical sketch behind us, I would invite you to look then with a, a renewed interest at the features found in these closing verses to Mark 13. As we do, let us put in place then the things Jesus stated and use them to cement in our mind the characteristic of the second coming. You'll notice as you come near the bottom of that slide, some immediate questions come before us. One might even call them observations. The second coming of Jesus never ceases to be an amazing description. In fact, by and large, many in the world are very much interested in that. It seems every few years there's a renewed interest, a renewed prediction, a renewed focus on that reality. You may remember back in the year 1999, there were so many making predictions of what was going to happen as the year 2000 rolled upon us. You remember the Y2K set of ideas? We were told the computers were just going to suddenly stop. Various features that the government used that depended on them were going to go haywire. It never happened. Jesus didn't come back in the year 2000. And now, two years ago, in December of 2012, there was that supposed prediction of Nostradamus and the characteristic attached to the Mayan calendar. Jesus didn't come then either. I'd submit that if the world stands, it won't be but another year or two when some prediction will arise and some worldwide event will capture the attention and suddenly a renewed interest again in the second coming. And yet if only we would reflect upon these closing verses to Mark 13, we would be immune from these fancies of men. You'll notice as you come to this very next slide, the second coming of Jesus is one that allows us to look with some detail at these verses in a piece-by-piece -piece fashion. And that's the way I chose to divide the lesson from this point forward. Let us look one by one at the verses that are there and just pay some careful attention as to what Jesus Himself said and let those guidelines be that which aid us greatly in thinking about this subject. Verse 32, Jesus Himself said, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And the first thing that is of immediate observation, Jesus said, But of that day. The word that is an adjective reminding us He's now talking about a different day than the one that He had just finished describing. That one was the near one, the one that would happen in that generation. That was what he would call this description. He's now switched from this to that. That day, the one that will be his second coming.
the one that would relate to the end of time and the end of the world. That day, he said, of that day and that hour. In the original Greek language, you might appreciate that the emphasis there, quite frankly, is that day or the hour. It's as if Jesus very carefully pointed us to the following interesting conclusion. This is a certain appointment in the very annals of heaven. It isn't that it will happen accidentally. It's not that it will come to pass in a happenstantial fashion. The actual day, the actual hour is currently known in heaven. It's as though it's written in the very mind of God. The human family wonders about it. We're intrigued by it. Many have taken the liberty to predict when it shall be. But we notice it is known at this point in the very mind of God. He went on to say, but of that day and that hour. Doesn't that point out that not just the day, but in fact the very time frame, the specific moment during the course of a day. You'll notice there are a few other verses in the Holy Word of God that highlight that very characteristic. Didn't John, a different New Testament writer, say in John 5, 28, but of that day and that hour? And so it is in respect to that day and that hour that time when the graves will be opened and all shall come forth. We notice again the references made to the hour. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 2, references made again to that hour of the Lord's return. You might appreciate with me here, even in this same context, in verse 35, four different periods of time during the course of a given night are mentioned. It says... At even, at midnight, at the cock crowing, or in the morning. So you'll notice it appears even the very moment is specified in the mind of God. And this occurrence of the second coming, again, is a well-known feature in heaven. Might we say in terms of that artifact that it brings us to observe this, that that end of time could well then occur at any time. You notice that Jesus has, in effect, made that statement, hadn't He? There was a statement of midnight, and there was a statement of cock crowing, there was a statement of even, there was a statement of morning. You and I don't know what time of day it will happen, but rest assured it could occur at any particular moment. In fact, you and I are well aware by virtue of Luke's statement on some of these accounts that, in fact, of course, as the earth revolve, or ro rotates on its axis that it's morning in some places, but it's already evening in others. And so as the Lord makes a return at a given instant or moment in time, for some it will be morning, for others it'll be even, for others it'll be night. And isn't it easy to conclude that it will be a moment well understood by everyone? As you and I build for that consideration, notice what comes for us next. Because verse 32 arguably does paint the following rather interesting question. It says, No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. You and I noted a moment ago about the end of time and how that God the Father knows when it is, but even the angels do not know. And isn't it true that on this occasion, Jesus even said that He did not know. The question that raises in your mind and mind is then no doubt this. Jesus is God. The Scriptures 
paint him and directly affirm him to be so on so many occasions. In Hebrews 1 verse 8, for example, we notice on that occasion that the inspired writer, in quoting the Old Testament, God the Father speaking to the Son said, Thou art my Son. The scepter to which he referred on that occasion, that scepter of righteousness, and his kingdom was one of, in fact, great power and righteousness. In fairness, we can appreciate in that text like 1 John 5, 20 that remind us again, He, speaking of Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. In Hebrew, rather in Philippians 2, verse 6, we remember there that being on an equality with God was not something to be grasped for He already had it. His equality with God, He was God. The question that that obviously raises is how could he be God but yet not know the occurrence of when the second coming was going to be? Well, maybe we should continue that consideration like this. The Bible is just as certain in proclaiming to us the fact that when he became incarnate, when he took upon himself the form of flesh, he was in the flesh. And Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus who has made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Five verses later in verse 14 of that same chapter, this description in addition is found. There speaking again of Christ, it says, For he himself likewise took part of the same, that is flesh and blood. As he took upon himself that form of flesh and blood, what apparently were some of the features that went along with it? It appears it included this. You'll notice the bottom of that slide. Based on Luke 2 verse 32, or rather verse 52, there apparently were some things that when he became flesh, he chose not to know. Doesn't it say that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man? And thus he grew up. But yet if he was God, didn't he know everything instantly and immediately? Apparently not. It appears that same description is before us in this location. When he chose to become of flesh and blood, when he chose to become like you and I in that sense, there were certain things he chose not to know. One of them was the actual date and hour of the end of time. You'll appreciate that now since He has ascended back to the Father, He may well know fully when that is. I suspect He does. But while He was here tabernacling in the flesh, that piece of information was distant from Him. Doesn't that paint for us even a grander picture that when He chose to leave heaven to live in the flesh and go to the cross for you and me, that also meant there are certain things in great infinite knowledge He chose not to bring with Him. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps in light of that, it causes us to revisit verse 33. As we come to that particular verse, you'll notice it's a very brief passage. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. In the original language, that phrase is literally this, Take ye heed and watch. As you give thought to that, you'll notice that word, that phrase, Take ye heed, it means to beware. It furthermore means to regard and to consider that second part of that idea. 
that same verse number 33, that word watch is to be on constant alert, to be on constant vigilant watchfulness. I would submit to you in light of that that these disciples then were painted with a grand consideration. Here they were. They had just come to Jesus. They had asked about when all these things were going to happen. And now He's telling them to watch. He's telling them to be alert. He's telling them to be always on guard. As you can well imagine, as Jesus made that statement to them, maybe they still had questions. He proceeds to explain. Verse number 34 says, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. The Lord's description now takes this form. He likens it, this whole scenario, to a man who took a far journey. This gentleman was the owner of several things, as he prepared to take this far journey, verse number 34 says, He gave authority to those who were His servants. He gave every man his work, and He even commanded the porter to watch. We can well appreciate the details about the Lord's description here. He has just been speaking about His own second coming. Nobody knows but the Father when it's going to be. He asserts the needfulness of watchfulness, verse 33 and now as he embeds the thought in their mind, he says, it's somewhat like this. A man preparing for a journey leaves the safekeeping of his goods into the hands of his servants. He commands them to watch. He commands them to, with authority, invest and do the things with his matters. You'll notice in verse number 34, that leads us to some of these comments. Did you notice it says that the man took a far journey? The original language suggests that it was a distant place from his own people. Maybe that highlights for us some of the features about the Lord's removal from earth. I've tried to ask you to think of it like this. Jesus himself, the master under discussion, he did tabernacle in the flesh, and isn't it true? He did proceed on what we might well call a far journey. After He was crucified and after He was resurrected, He ascended back to the Father. He went to a distant location away from those people. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, a description of that journey is given. While the apostles were watching, He ascended up out of their sight and proceeded into the clouds. You'll notice, just like then a man going on a far journey, he too left behind some instructions to his servants. They were told to watch. Jesus left, didn't He, as He ascended to the Father, and He has given us, He has given us as His servants these commandments to watch. Look with me at some of these verses. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28, Verses 18 and following. The affirmation that all power is given in me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way even unto the end of the world. In Colossians 3.17, again we're reminded that all authority rests with Him for whatsoever ye do in word or deed, 
Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Is it easy then to appreciate that this comparison has so much richness within it? The Son of Man did leave. But just as surely, verse number 35 quickly reminds us, Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. Just as surely as that man went and took that distant journey, verse number 35 tells us he's coming back. He's coming back. This one who went on that distant place and location away from his people, it isn't permanent. He is coming back. And verse 35 says, Watch ye therefore. He had just said two verses earlier about the emphasis upon watching, and now he says, Watch ye therefore. That word therefore is another conclusion word reminding us it is a powerful matter that relates to what has just been said. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. That word watch, I might say, is in a Greek tense that really is a commandment. It emphasizes its urgency and its importance. And so watchfulness was incredibly needful for those of that day, for those apostles and those disciples. You'll notice with me in verse 35 that that very thought again leads us to appreciate what's about us in the world even today. It says, For ye know not when the Master cometh. Notice it doesn't say if the Master will come. It says when. He is coming back. Our world so often has scoffed at that idea. There have been those who have almost with a fanciful life have written about the absurdity in their mind of the second coming of Jesus. But may I say when it happens, they will be the ones who are found in dire straits. Men have often scoffed at the idea. In fact, didn't Peter comment about that in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and following? It was in that chapter he even commented that since the fathers fell asleep, many have asked the question, where is the sign of His coming? Do not all things continue as they were since the days of the creation? The continual and constant fashion of earth has led many to think, well, nothing's ever going to change it. The earth has rotated once on an axis now for umpteen years. Is it not going to continue? Jesus here said, the Master is coming back. You'll notice in verse number 35, quite often that is a frequent mention in the New Testament, isn't it? We find in Revelation 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, with specific emphasis on verse 7, wasn't it there, John, a different New Testament writer, said, Behold, He cometh in the clouds, and every eye shall see Him, even those who pierced Him. Every eye is going to see Him when that moment arrives. You'll remember with me in John 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus, with a great character of encouragement to those apostles in the hours just prior to the crucifixion, said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's coming back. You and I remember that famous presentation in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
there were some brethren in Thessalonica who were troubled about the thought of what happens when a Christian dies. Does that person lose any opportunity for eternal life because he happens not to be alive when Jesus returns? And Paul, in the last paragraph of 1 Thessalonians 4, comforted them greatly when he said, I would not have you ignorant of them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not as others which have no hope. Verse 13 of that chapter. And then he has this tremendous statement in verse 16. He wanted them to know. He didn't want them to be troubled because a Christian had died. He wanted them to understand, verse 16, that the Lord Himself shall descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Did you notice the little pronoun inserted? The Lord Himself shall descend. He's not going to send an ambassador, an emissary. He himself will return. And when he does, it'll be with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the glorious trump of God will sound. And on that occasion, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 18 closes that chapter by saying, Comfort one another with these words. Maybe in light of that, we can revisit Mark 13. You'll notice in it, it brings us to verse number 36. Lest coming, suddenly he find you sleeping. He's finishing that presentation that he had begun two verses earlier. That man that had gone away into a far place and left his goods to the safekeeping of another. Now, when the master returns, this warning is etched in place. Lest coming, suddenly he find you sleeping. You may notice the little adverb, suddenly, found in that verse. The Lord's second coming will be an instantaneous, sudden occurrence. There won't be a year's advance notice, a month's advance notice, not even an hour's advance notice. It will literally be suddenly. And that adverb in verse 36 says that when He comes, how will He find you and me? It's easy to see that when that master returns, if he finds his servants sleeping, if he finds them not watching, if he finds them, in fact, taking advantage of the things the master had left them, he'll be upset with them. He'll be displeased with them. He may even remove them from their servitude. He may even cast them out of his, out of his service. By the same token, might we ask, what about when the master returns at his second coming? What will he do to me if he finds me sleeping? What about you if he finds you sleeping? Do you suppose that he would overlook it or will he in anger and in wrath in fact pour upon you the great matter of justice that you deserve for sleeping on the job? You and I as Christians were charged, commissioned, and, and challenged. When we became a Christian rising from that watery grave of baptism, we were set on a lifetime charge of not sleeping on the job. We must live faithfully until death, Revelation 2.10. You notice the word lest that begins verse 36 is a statement that says in order not to be this way, we ought not be found sleeping. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide, so often the scriptures remind us of the dire and urgent importance of being watchful and alert. You and I can remember so many other places like the five wise and five foolish virgins. Five of them weren't ready when the bridegroom came. 
And we remember the parable of the tares when in fact that terrible lot was that the weeds were growing amongst the wheat. But however, we notice in the finality, we come to the following statement of verse 37, the last verse of the chapter. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. You may remember then that this passage sets before us that not only did Jesus give these statements about watching to those disciples of that first century, and not only did He tell it to those apostles again that lived 1,900 years ago, but verse 37 points this directly at you and me all these centuries later. What I say unto you, I say unto all, no matter when they may live, watch. As we close the lesson... By way of conclusion, the personal question for all of us is, how watchful are you and I? Are you alert on the job or are you and I sleeping? That challenges us to contemplate our Christian service. Are there days, are there times when we allow the importance of Christianity to basically be far down on our list of considerations? Do we simply allow the church and the features of living as we should to occupy the highest consideration of watchfulness. I need to watch tomorrow just as much as today. And you need to watch Tuesday just as much as today. Are you watching? Are you alert? Or are you sleeping on the job? If you, my friend, find yourself sleeping on the job, and if you know that to be true, make a change today. These disciples were impressed in their mind. You may notice three times Jesus said, watch. Three times He embedded it in their hearts in this little paragraph. Surely three times is enough for us to appreciate. Not once, not twice, but thrice Jesus said, watch. Are you watching? The gospel plan of salvation is the first step to make your eyes and mind wide open to the affairs of this life. We can begin to watch with the greatest of urgency. Satan can't easily cloud our hearts that way when we, of course, have our minds attuned to this book. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38? If you haven't, why not today? Jesus Himself demanded that you believe Him to be the Son of God. You repent of your sins. You confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and you be immersed, baptized in water for the remission of your sins. If today we could assist you in accomplishing that, what a great day of rejoicing for you and yea for the angels that shall be. If however you, though becoming a Christian at one time, have been sleeping on the job, your example to others has been woeful, even abysmal. Others have looked at your life and said, I want no part of that if that's what Christianity is all about. If that's been the case, may I say to you, you can be forgiven of that. Jesus will wash the slate of your life clean. Sin will be gone. And again, you can live in a pristine and powerful, exemplary fashion before others today. If you need to come forward and ask for prayers of those for forgiveness of sins known publicly, why not let it be done even now? No sleeping on the job while together we stand and while we sing.